If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open them to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking this morning at 2 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to read the entirety of the text. We're going to spend the great bulk of our time in the first 11 verses. There is a great deal of text here, and I have promised some that I was not going to preach a 90-minute sermon. So we're going to look intently at the first 11 verses, but then we are also going to look at what God tells us in this second half of the chapter as well. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 2, beginning at verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because, you're, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manahim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth. The son of Saul went out from Menahim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. 
Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How could I then lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, and they did not, and they, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marched the whole morning. They came to Manahim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word. That you would teach us from it. That we would learn not just about David and Abner and Joab, but that we would see your kingdom, Lord that we would see the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be encouraged in our lives even now. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. The Old Testament can be challenging for Christians. We could look at it as old stories of people who do not share our experiences or our problems. It could seem to be irrelevant to us. Or another temptation is that we can see the Old Testament as filled with moral lessons on how we can live better. We could be tempted to separate the Old Testament out from the important parts of the Bible. Parts of the New Testament, like Romans or the Gospel of John. But this chapter this morning shows us why the Old Testament is important for us. It does give us the history of David the king and his kingdom. But David is also a picture of the true king, Jesus Christ. It has more to tell us 
than a story of political maneuvering. It shows us the nature of the beginning of Christ's kingdom. The opposition to that kingdom and the conflict that that brings. So let's begin then this morning as we open chapter 2 and see David, but to look beyond David to David's greater son. We begin at verse 1 of chapter 2, and what we see is a picture of a godly king. We are coming back now to David. Our attention has been on Saul and Jonathan and on Israel's defeat. But the story keeps going on. So we turn back to David here in chapter 2. For the last 12 years, David has lived as a fugitive on the run. He is now living in the ruins of Ziklag, a Philistine city. You will recall that when David was with the Philistines, that the Amalekites had come in and captured the families of his men and all of their goods. And you could just imagine they weren't very gentle or neat with the town. And so as David comes back, he's back sitting and living amongst rubble. Additionally, the Philistines have been victorious against Israel, and all of Israel is scattered. So that means that David is now free from Saul's pursuit. But his 600 men are no match for the Philistine army. And so the question comes naturally, what is next? What does David do now? Now, we have to remember that David is the king. He's not the king because some Amalekite brought him the crown from off of Saul's head. No, he is the king because God has chosen him. And because the prophet Samuel has anointed him as the king of Israel, succeeding Saul. And yet still David is not sure what to do next. What will be best for him? In one sense, this is something that should be very familiar to you. There are many times in our lives when we're not sure what to do. We're even afraid that if perhaps we make the wrong choice, very bad things will happen. So what do we do at those times? David gives us the answer. We seek God's will. That's what David does here in verse 1. David inquired of the Lord. Now, it may not seem obvious to it may seem obvious to us what David should do. He's the king. He should go and rally Israel behind him. He should threaten them if they don't fall in line. He's got the crown, he's got the armlet. He's the leader. But David's going to wait. Wait patiently on the Lord. David doesn't want to have his timing be in front of God's timing. And so he'll go and get God's counsel. He says to the Lord, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? Now we may ask, why does David do this? Why doesn't he just forge on ahead? He, after all, he is the king. He is the brave man. He is decisive. Why does he need to ask God what to do next? I think John Calvin puts it succinctly and well. 
He says, David still knew he could seriously err if God did not guide him. Stop and think about that for a moment. Here is David the king, anointed by God, and he realizes that he needs God's guidance every day in his life. Like David, when we act in a panic or act out of fear, we fail to inquire of God. But when we act in faith, as David is here, then we wait on God's word. Now, we don't have the means that very likely David used to inquire of God. David likely used the Urim and the Thummim to inquire of God as to what he should do next. And please don't ask me how the Urim and the Thummim worked. We, we don't know. It may have been some way of casting lots. It, it may have been sort of the Old Testament version of 20 questions. Should I go up, God? Yes or no? Should I go up north? Yes or no? Should I go to this city? Yes or no? We, we just don't know. But I can tell you this. As much as you might think when you hear about an Urim and a Thummim, how great it would be to have some device that would allow you to ask God directly a question, the Urim and the Thummim can't hold a candle to the Holy Spirit. And you, Christian, have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. You can inquire of God through prayer. You can inquire of God through His Word. God speaks to you every day through His Word. David didn't have your Bible. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have most of the Old Testament. David was jealous of us that we have all of God's revelation. So we have no excuse not to inquire of God, to go to his word and to find out what we should do. So God answers, and he tells David to go to Hebron. This is significant. The first thing that is significant is obvious, but I want you to see it and think about it. David obeys God. He doesn't question God. He doesn't try to find a loophole. He doesn't say, I don't understand this God. He simply and quickly obeys. Would that we had such obedience. That as soon as we hear from God, we snap to attention and we seek to obey our Lord. And to do this is not easy because what David is doing is he is burning all of his connections with the Philistines. Remember, he's in a Philistine city. He's still technically under the protection of the Philistine king. But once he leaves Ziklag and he publicly sides with Judah, with the Israelites, the Philistines will have nothing to do with him. After all, what they're going to say is, I'm sure glad we didn't take him to the battle. He is a traitor. We need to destroy him. That is David trusting the Lord. The Philistines are more powerful than David is. And he's actually taking on more responsibility than he's ever had before. And he trusts the Lord to carry him through it. Hebron was the most important town in Judah. It's about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And right now, Jerusalem is a pagan city. It's inhabited by the Jebusites. These are one of the many ites of the Canaanites that dwell in the land. And as you picture 
the land of Israel, there is a spot in the middle of it where Jerusalem is, where the 12 tribes did not hold sway. Jerusalem was a fortress that we will see in weeks to come that David will conquer and make his capital. But for now, Hebron is the most significant city. But that doesn't mean it was large. It was actually small. We might even call it tiny. The text tells us that. Do you see here in verse 3, David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. Now what that means is David and his 600 men and their wives and their children all gathered up and they went to Hebron, which is a walled city in, in Judah, and they didn't fit in the city. It was too small. They had to settle in the towns, the villages around Hebron. There would have been many such villages around a walled city. And in a time of attack, they would go into the city for safety under the walls. But they didn't have land to farm. They didn't have homes to live in. They needed to live outside the city. So this capital of Judah is a minor city that can't take an influx of a couple of thousand people. That lets us see something. It had no way to compare with Philistine power. What it did have was a covenant history. Genesis tells us that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives were buried at Hebron. So this is a tiny place. But it's a beginning. David is anointed and he reigns over one tribe, we read in verse 4. The men of Judah come and they anoint David king. Now, David in Hebron doesn't look like much. But God's king is now reigning. The kingdom of God is visible on the earth in a way that it was not before. And if you think about it, that's the way that Jesus describes the kingdom of God in Mark chapter 4. He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Small, insignificant, very hard to see. But it's real. It is visible. And it grows. And it grows larger than all of the plants. Jesus is reigning now. So much of the world does not know that. But he is. What began so small with a few disciples has now grown throughout the earth. There are millions upon millions upon hundreds of millions of Christians who claim the name of Jesus Christ and believe the scriptures throughout all of the world. Now, you may not see the full power and glory of God's kingdom now, but you must know that he already reigns. And then we see in the second half of verse 4, we see them come and announce to David that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. Now, these men of Jabesh-Gilead had at great risk for themselves marched through the night to the place where Saul and his son's bodies had been placed on a wall for display and shame by the Philistines. And at great risk they had come and taken them down off the wall and back to their land for a proper 
burial. They did not want the Philistines to dishonor Saul and his sons. Now, why would they do this? Why would they head off at great risk to themselves and risk an attack by the Philistines? We have to remember, I trust that as I advise you, you have taken previous weeks to read through 1 Samuel. And you may recall in 1 Samuel, we have the story of Jabesh Gilead when the brutal Ammonite came to Jabesh Gilead to attack it. And they were inside their walls and they said, can we make a treaty with you? Can we make a bargain? And he said, sure you can. My only requirement is I want to gouge out the right eye of every man in the city. That's not exactly something that makes you want to surrender. And so they said, well, we'll think about your offer. But we're going to send out messengers to see if anyone will come and save us. And if no one will come and save us, then I guess we've got to take that offer as bad as it is. But if someone will save us, then we don't need to. And they sent out messengers and the messengers came to Saul and Saul was outraged. And he gathered up all of Israel behind him with an army and they marched to Jabesh Gilead and they annihilated the Ammonites. So much so that the scripture tells us there was not two men left standing together. So the men of Jabesh Gilead, the inhabitants, are obviously pro-Saul. I don't know whether in Israelite politics the Saul party is blue or red or green or purple, but they are the deepest shade of color that you can get. If Saul ran in an election here, he'd get 101%. They love Saul. And they have good reason to. So David shows his wisdom by giving an appeal to his kingdom to these men. He begins with an expression of sincere gratitude in verse 5. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. And then he proposes a treaty with them in verse 6. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now you have to understand the Hebrew idiom here, I will do good to you, means we can make a treaty. We can be allied. We will be together, presumably against the enemy, the Philistines. And then he concludes this with an invitation to join him and his kingdom in verse 7. He says, be strong and be valiant. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Let me paraphrase this for you. Listen, you are the bravest of the brave. You don't have to worry about what the other pro-Saul people will think. You guys are bold. And I'm now the king of Judah. Join me. Let's unite Israel. David is completely sincere in what he does. And what he has done here is described, I think, so well by Ralph Davis in this way. He says, David is sincerely complimentary, blatantly political, and earnestly evangelistic all at once. And that's really what he's doing here. He's calling on Jabesh Gilead to acknowledge his kingship, to join his kingdom. And he does this in the most appealing way possible. He tells them, you are the boldest of men. You have done such a great thing. You should be the first to acknowledge my kingdom. And so what we see here is the very first act of the new king in Judah is to offer peace and friendship 
to Israelites, the most pro-Saul Israelites. Now this also, I think, gives us a picture of Jesus' kingdom. For many, perhaps most of us, Jesus' call to us is one of appeal and attraction. The appeal comes from who Jesus is. He is the one who is gentle. He is the one who cares for us. And the appeal comes from the promises that Jesus gives to us. He promises to give us rest, to give us a place that he has prepared for us. This is exactly what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 11, when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is how Jesus calls us. This is who you come to. You don't come to a set of philosophical beliefs. You don't come to a set of truths. You don't come to duties that have to be done or a better way of life. You come to Jesus. Jesus calls you to himself, and there is no better appeal than that. Will you hear it now? Now, we don't know how the men of Jabesh Gilead responded to David, but you can respond right now to Jesus. Well, if verses 1 through 7 show us a picture of Jesus and his kingdom, verses 8 through 11 show us something else. They show us an ungodly opposition, a rebellious resistance. And again, we have an historical account that has true meaning. These are facts given to us. But it is also a picture of the broader reality. David shows us a glimpse of Jesus, and Abner shows us a glimpse of the world's opposition to Jesus. In verse 8, we are reintroduced to Abner, the son of Ner. If you will recall, Abner is Saul's cousin, the son of his uncle. And he is the commander, was the commander of Saul's army. In 1 Samuel, we first meet him when he has no idea who David is right before he fights Goliath. And then later we see David rebuke Abner for failing to protect Saul when David snuck into the camp and got right by Saul's side and took his spear away. But now here in verse 8, we see Abner taking over. He obviously was not killed at the Battle of Mount Gilboa. And so he picks up the shattered pieces of Saul's army and he establishes himself as a kind of ruling general. We know this because verse 11 tells us that David reigned in Hebron for seven years and six months, but Ishbosheth only reigned. Two years. So there are five and a half years unaccounted for. And that means for those five years, Abner is in charge. He is trying to figure it out. Avoiding the Philistines. Trying to keep Israel from being completely subjugated. And all of this is about opposing David, the true king. Because Abner knows that David has been anointed king over Judah. 
And as we'll see in a minute, Abner knows that God has chosen David to be king and that he was anointed to be king, not just over Judah, but over all of Israel. But Abner sets up his kingdom on the far east of Israel across the Jordan. If you can picture the geography of Israel, if you picture it as my hand, Judah would be at the far bottom down toward the bottom of my palm. And the Philistines would be on the west coast where the sea is. And the River Jordan runs through the Holy Land. You may remember that when Joshua and his army came to drive out the, the Canaanites, they had to cross the River Jordan, and a couple of the tribes wanted to have their inheritance on the eastern side of the Jordan, but everybody else wanted it to be on the west side of Jordan. The west side of Jordan is the good part. Now, knowing that, you have to understand that where Abner has set up shop, as it were, in Manahim, is on the far east of the kingdom on the wrong side of the Jordan, in the hinterlands. Now, why would he do this? Well, it's because he knows that he can't control what is Israel. The Philistines will destroy him. So he's basically hiding from the Philistines and hiding from David as far away as he can get to try to consolidate his control. He is rebellious and he is defiant. Even when it doesn't make sense, that's what he's doing. It makes no sense for Israel to be divided with the 10 tribes or 11 tribes and Judah in the face of a common enemy. But that's what Abner wants. And Abner is not just opposing David. From his own mouth, he tells us that he's opposing God. In chapter 3, at verses 9 and 10, Abner says, God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Confession time, spoiler alert, Abner knows David's supposed to be the king. And the only way to oppose David is to oppose God. And you know what? Abner's okay with that. Because... He's opposed to God and his kingdom. He knows the truth, but he doesn't care. He knows the right thing to do. The best thing to do would be to submit to the true king. But Abner can't bring himself to do that. This is a picture of how the world opposes Jesus' kingdom. It doesn't matter that submitting would bring peace, joy, and love. The opposition is rooted in pride and in sin. And so this should not surprise you that Jesus' kingdom has opposition. It is natural because people are sinners. They are rebels against God and his rule. So after these five and a half years, Abner realizes that he needs something to make his kingdom seem a little bit more regal. And so he engages in some manipulation, some dishonest manipulation. He sets up a rival king in Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is the only surviving son of Saul. And so Abner tries to prop himself up by getting a son of Saul and by making him king. Now we have to understand here that Ishbosheth 
is not much of a leader. The first thing that you have to know is he didn't go to war with Saul and his brothers. And it wasn't because he was eight years old. The text tells us he's 40. So he's not able or willing or trusted to go off to war. The second thing that we know from the account of 2 Samuel is there's only one occasion in which Ishbosheth dares to contradict Abner. And as soon as he does, Abner says, that's it, I quit. I'm going over to David. So we can't imagine that this is a common occurrence. Abner's not used to this. One pushback and he's done. I'm out of here. So Ishbosheth is weak. Why is Abner doing this then? He's trying to find legitimacy when there is none. He knows what God has decreed. Others know what God has decreed. He knows God's plan. He's seen it actually play out before his very eyes. The defeat and death of Saul are a punishment and a way for God to transfer the kingdom from Saul to David. And yet, Abner persists. This is very useful for you to see. Because our tendency is to see the problems of our world, of our neighbors, and even ourselves, as a lack of knowledge. If only people knew what they didn't know, they would make the right choices. They would do the right thing. And this even spreads to our view of evangelism. We think that the greatest problem is that people don't know about Jesus and know how great he is. But Abner shows us that it's possible, even likely, that people know and they keep on in rebellion and sin. That is the irrationality of sin. Sinners will oppose God's will even when they know it is not the best way. And they do that because they do not want to submit to Jesus and his rule. Now, see something else that's important here. Abner is not guilty of some obvious gross immorality or public sin. The only thing he has said is, I will not submit. His sin is rooted in pride. But do not be discouraged by this opposition or by opposition to Jesus today. Jesus always builds his church in enemy territory. There is always an enemy to be faced. As a matter of fact, Jesus came into the world to overcome this opposition and establish his kingdom. When you see opposition, you must trust Jesus. Well, one last comment or series of comments over a great deal of text. The, the final 20 verses of this chapter tell of many things. But they describe for us how Abner's opposition does not remain theoretical. He acts on it. In verses 14 through 16, we see a deadly contest at the pool of Gibeon. And then there is a fierce battle that followed that draw when 12 men on either side came together and killed each other. And so 
Joab and Abner had tried to resolve it, but they couldn't. And then there is that pursuit of Abner by Ahasel and his death at the hands of Abner. And then finally we get this scene where the men of Benjamin gather up on a hill to make a last stand, and Abner now begs for peace. Now, what is the meaning of all of this? Without getting weighed down in all of the details, it gives us insight into the opposition to God's kingdom. You need to see here first that Abner is the aggressor. You remember our geography lesson. Abner and Ishbosheth are far from Judah, far up in the north, far off to the east. And Abner takes his men and he takes them right up to the border of Judah at Gibeon. Spitting distance from Judah. He's not out on a walk. His men are not lost. He is deliberately trying to provoke David and Joab. He wants a civil war. He wants an occasion to fight against David to solidify his kingdom. And then Joab, as a, a wise commander, presumably under the authority of David, when he sees an enemy force come right up to his border, he gathers the troops and they go up to see that everything just stays stable. That they don't cross into Judah. That no homes are attacked. And we see this because Joab sets his men down on one side of the pool at Gibeon. And so we have Abner's men on one side of the pool, Joab's men on the other side of the pool. And what will happen? Well, maybe they'll sit until the sun goes down and get cold and go home. But Abner won't have that. Do you see what Abner does next? He provokes the bloodshed. He says, let the young men arise and compete before us. Now, what Abner is saying here is, let's do a David and Goliath on steroids. You remember David and Goliath in that battle? That was Goliath coming out and saying, armies shouldn't fight army. I'm the champion of the Philistines. Choose your champion. And whichever man wins, that is the side that prevails. And so Abner says, let's do that, but let's do that with a dozen guys on each side. And we'll see who wins. And Joab, I think, reluctantly says, let them arise. He'd rather have that kind of a contest than a full-blown war. But there's a problem. It's a draw. All two dozen men killed. That's why this place is called the field of the sword edges, is what that odd Hebrew name means. So Joab's trying to avoid greater bloodshed, but Abner keeps provoking it. And then it moves not just to a contest, but to full-blown war. And the battle was very fierce that day in verse 17. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And so when things go badly, Abner is the one then who begins now to speak falsely when it suits him. There's this incident of Ahasahel chasing Abner, and it's hard to tell what's going on here. If somehow they're yelling over their shoulders as they're running, or whether they say, okay, everybody take a break now. All right, let's run again. And they do that. I don't know. But there's this odd scene where Ahasel really wants to take home the king prize, literally. But he's fast, but not really as strong of a man as his brothers. The worst thing that happens to him is he catches Abner. Abner kills him. And then the rest of 
the men of Judah continue to pursue, and Benjamin gathers up on this hill for a last stand. And then Abner says in verse 26, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Joab, can't we all just get along? Can't we have peace here? How much longer do we have to kill? Now, it's interesting. The Hebrew in verse 27 is very difficult. If you look at different translations when you get home, you'll see there's different ways to translate it. But I think the sense of it, we get closer from the New American Standard than from the ESV. And the sense of it is something like this, if you'll forget me to forgive me for paraphrasing. Joab says, Abner, you didn't start nothing, there wouldn't have been nothing. Why did you have to start this? If you hadn't blasted off your mouth in the morning, then nobody would have been killed, and there would have been no battle, and we wouldn't have had to chase you at all. You're to blame, and now you want to quit? After we're wiping the floor with you? Seriously? Now, you may wonder, why does Joab say okay and go home? I think it's in what Abner says. Do you not know that the end will be bitter? David doesn't want a total victory. David wants reconciliation. David wants reunion. That's what's important to him. I think we could learn a lesson from David in this. Because often when we fight with others, whether it's in our family or with our spouse or with our friends, what's most important to us is winning. And David and Joab say, no, it's not. It's peace. It's reconciliation. It's hope. And all of this reminds us that there is a cost to rebelling against the king. And that cost here for Abner is measured in slain soldiers. But the cost in our day could be measured in broken families and marriages. It could be measured in lives wasted in sin and in immorality when we rebel against Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus is the true king. David gives us a picture of Jesus and his kingdom. And David's reign reminds us that God's kingdom starts small and continues on in spite of fierce and determined opposition. Are you within the bounds of Jesus' kingdom? Has his appeal brought you to himself? Have you seen the peace and joy that comes from following Jesus? Or are you still restless and angry in opposing him? Today is the day to follow Jesus. Not tomorrow. Today. Today is the day to remember that you serve the king. Jesus' kingdom might seem small to the world. But from small beginnings, a mighty kingdom is rising. Jesus shall reign. Let's pray.